0: Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast, and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter.
1: Look at the picture. See the skull the part of bone removed, the master race Frankenstein radio controls, the brain thoughts broadcasting radio, the eyesight television, the Frankenstein earphone radio, the threshold brainwash radio, the latest new skull reforming to contain all Frankenstein controls, even in thin skulls of white pedigree males. Visible Frankenstein controls, the synthetic nerve radio directional antenna loop. Make copies for yourself. There is no escape from this worse gangster police state using all of the deadly gangster Frankenstein controls.
0: Gio Panacchietti is a writer, artist, and gonzo philosopher. <laughs> so we are here to talk primarily about the, the work of Francis E. Deck, who was himself something of a gonzo philosopher, perhaps. <laughs> and um, I'm happy uh, Gio was willing to join me to, to talk about the subject that we both are
2: fascinated by so thanks mm-hmm. for thanks for coming on oh the pleasure is mine pleasure is mine uh I, it's a great honor to come on your show uh i've been following you for a little bit now we've been following each other and uh yeah we we're part of uh, a sphere of i guess you could say prolific posters on uh, twitter.com and elsewhere so and i've been reading your articles actually like one of my favorite, absolute favorite works is uh the like the- what was it called theory cells in Trump land or something uh yeah that one is one of my favorites uh it really hits home it it contextualizes what people mean by the whole like trump and post-truth thing and i think that francis deck actually now that he's having a uh, mini renaissance Mm -hmm. is i i I think like we could get into the social subtext of what would you say schizopolitics put it that way (laughs) so quite literally schizopolitics
0: so so and i think we'll we'll loop back to that once we've built up some some context for deck
3: mm-hmm.
0: so let's uh let's begin by just giving some background
2: on him to those not yet familiar well francis c e. deck was um in in new york in Nassau county and we know this because he revealed his own uh, address and you had to send him uh money or a manual typewriter he was um i believe he was clinically diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia he was a lawyer Uh, but he was spent some time in, uh, Los Angeles as a, I believe a firefighter director, but majority of his life was spent in, and around New York city. Uh, and he would, he was, I would call him the first, uh, proto internet ship poster. He -hmm. would, he had a very elaborate inner worldview and inner life that he concocted. Uh, I think one of his beliefs he called cosmicism, uh, he would basically type out these very long rambling screeds and he would Xerox them and would mail them to every major radio show politician. And he would like literally go around New York city and randomly like put them on car windows and uh, businesses. And he believed that the whole world was subsumed under a one world, uh directed uh, communist gangster computer God that he called it. And he has a very, I would say, if he wasn't a schizophrenic, he would be a prolific sci-fi writer. And this was, of course, uh, in the 50s and 60s. This was before a lot of the major sci-fi works of a conspiratorial nature. He would have this very, um, I guess nowadays you would call it gang stalking, where he believed that the agents of the communist gangster computer god were single-handedly uh concocting a conspiracy against him because he's the only one that wasn't the victim of the uh uh what we heard in the clip the uh brain thoughts broadcasting frankenstein radio controls but we'll get into like what he meant by that uh so he was he was basically i believe he lived in the same house uh that was owned by his brother and he thought the his own brother was part of uh, the conspiracy and he died in hospital around 2004 I want to say 2007 uh and he became known because eventually Doc Britton uh got a hold of these uh because he mailed them everywhere to all these random radio stations and he late at night I believe Doc Britton was uh was uh on on a particular uh (laughs) substance uh, marijuana and he recorded these like long rambling screeds and which has since been archived by people who uh were interested in Deck because it's very funny. Francis Deck's work got into the hands of some pretty avant-garde people. Uh, I believe the what's it called, the church, the mock religion, uh the church of the paradox, inner paradox or something, uh, that pe- members of this like mock religion archived his work and also got into the hands of prolific artists, such as Genesis P Ridge. Was the uh, transgender artist that was part of psychic television and had a lot of relationships to Throbbing Gristle and very prolific uh, avant-garde, like post-punk, proto-punk, the music spheres. And I believe his work was also in some ways paid homage to by comic strips from uh, Robert Crumb in his uh, Weird Comics book. Uh, And for people who know Robert Crumb, he is a very prolific lowbrow artist, like the most prolific lowbrow 60s comic artist uh, that did such famous works as Frick's the Cat, Angel Food McSpade. Uh, And he was all about this in certain comics this schizoaffective relationship to modern american life uh comics like joe blow for instance so he got on to that well while he was doing i believe at the same time comics to the story by uh philip k dick and i believe philip k dick had some relationship to francis deck he knew of him but uh i believe he was the later works like Vallas, he was going so francis Deck has this weird currency among underground avant-garde people through his uh, schizo effective paranoid worldview that was totalized in a one world a uh, cosmic conspiracy because think of uh think of all of the popular forerunners to this i mean that came later uh like david ike for instance how the reptilians are controlling us through the the fake moon base and the radio waves that are broadcasting uh, very similar to the Gnostic idea of Archons projecting images in our minds. This is Francis E. Deck. Like this is before these weird like Internet conspiracies from forums like, you know, godlike productions the export this was in the 60s this was ship posting done diy way before the apparatus of the internet just imagine if francis deck had access to the internet i mean my god he would be one of the most prolific posters of all time so
0: yeah yeah no it's it's quite astonishing um he was uh so as you said he was a lawyer he um he was disbarred from the, Mm -hmm. the state of new york and then he attempted to flee to Poland, which is where his, you know, ancestors were from. Um, but which is quite bizarre because, you know, he would have been fleeing to communist Poland. <laughs> but um, <laughs>
2: he, he believed that, um, uh, the Slavoid race, as he called them, right. that they were the only true, uh, and maybe some of like the weird internet, uh, alternative history, like, uh, all far right neo-pagans maybe they could look into this but he believed that <laughs> the slavoid races were the only true aryan race and that every other race is a sub-race that was created by the uh communist gangster computer god that was made three or four hundred years ago by the slavoid people uh to i think uh calculate numbers so this was like a few hundred years before communism but he believed that that the slavoid races are either created or knew about the uh computer god <laughs> therefore he tried to go back to his homeland but he believed that it was actually a trick uh by the uh CIA gangster police to uh inculcate him with deadly nerve gas in the flight and he actually ended up i believe in Montreal and he said that the the CIA gangsters beat him bloody and uh, locked him in a prison cell so, I, but I believe his, fr- his flight got crossed. There's something like that. So, yeah. There's an incredible passage where he describes his, uh,
0: his attempt to flee. And then he um, is placed on a plane. I think he's, yeah, he's in Canada. He's, he's placed on a plane back to New York. And he describes, uh, you know, he, I walked. I quickly walked into the airplane and saw a CIA gangster with with a small electric hairdryer type blower pumping deadly poison nerve gas smoke into secret compartments under the ashtrays. So we imagine perhaps this was someone cleaning the plane. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you know um, he's got uh, somebody. All the other deadly CIA underling gangsters upon the staged return flight. They all had taken the top secret poison nerve gas antidote pill, immuning them from the deadly poison nerve gas smoke. Deadly poison nerve gas was sprayed at me from cigars, cigarettes, and even from ballpoint pens, also from the wig of a woman sitting next to me. Even the Swiss cheese type ice cubes were evaporating into poison nerve gas smoke
2: in all of the quote free unquote drinks. (laughs) And apparently everybody else was immune on the plane. That's another, uh,
0: yeah yeah um so he's uh you know his his accounts are as you said um and and as we'll, we'll discuss later, one of the only sort of academic discussions of his work is that from this book by Jeffrey sconce called the technical delusion um and you know he sconce points this out as well that you know the that whole passage. It sounds like a sort of, um, you know, much more elaborate version of like a James Bond movie with mm-hmm. all of these um, all of these sort of mundane objects turned into secret weapons. And, and also, obviously, so much of his work just resonates with the sort of both the sci-fi production of the era. Although, as you say, he kind of anticipated some of the directions that it took rather than rather than really being influenced by it. Mm -hmm. he also sconce also points out the relation his relationship to um eric von daniken's chariots of the gods yes yeah relates to the whole kind of cosmic history that that you brought up where there are these kind of prior super civilizations that developed these advanced technologies which were then hijacked by these other lesser civilizations which now control it uh he so he has you know just a huge amount of resonance with the all of these different uh kind of popular discourses of his of his era and you know it's it's unclear to what extent you, you know he's not a he he's he he doesn't appear to have been a a you know he he's not like citing texts or, or <laughs> so he he doesn't appear to be necessarily all that immersed in any of this material but it, it's so it's unclear how much of it is him absorbing absorbing certain cultural influences versus how much of it is him really just decorating yeah. this incredibly elaborate, um, you know, as you said, kind of uh, alternative version of world history mm-hmm. and this, you know, incredibly vivid vision of totalized control that you know yes. really resonates as as we might get to a bit later with with many of the kind of mainstream discourses of the period. Um, yes, you know, in some way he's really. An exaggerated version of, of positions you saw, you know, elaborated in much more sort of respectable forms. Um, way more respectable forms, yeah. <laughs> so, so he he really um, is is somebody who who just uh, embodies the era in, in a way that that is quite fascinating. And as you said, I mean, I, I've also always thought of him in relation to Dick, partly because the the similarity of the names actually is. is yeah, um, one East Coast, the other West Coast. Um, you know, there, there, there is. So, I'd, I'd be very interested to know about to what extent Dick was sort of drawing for, especially for his later work from um, from Deck. But obviously, there was already a sort of conf- a sort of psychic confluence between them. Yes, there's right. a
2: sort of synchronicity between their work. Uh, I think that it's funny because there's there's a few ways you could approach this. Okay, so one of them would be. The poetics of conspiracy itself. Uh, I've often argued on Twitter, and maybe I should really like write an article to contextualize this, uh, where conspiracy or conspiracism is an alternative ontology. So now we have the lingo of that the media likes to make fun of, post-truth, alternative facts. Uh, I would say that conspiracy in the network societies, or rather what Deleuze would call societies of control, is I would say a valid uh, ontology, even though like okay let's let's paraphrase this because we all know that Francis Deck was suffering from schizophrenia, and so this may come off as crazy, obviously so uh what I mean is that the there is a a real basis in terms of an ontology of conspiracy in terms of the fundamental assumptions about. A human nature in relation to power and surveillance and so forth so now we have philip k dick which is this control over the psyche of mankind is extended to the spiritual dimension now here's another interesting connection okay so francis deck philip k dick it's alluded to that he's aware of his work but there's other people like uh name drop name drop alex jones apparently had he said this on many occasions had a connection to philip k dick's family and i believe he his father knew him or something and alex jones one time alluded to the fact that philip k dick he was quote unquote aware of uh the you know what what does he call it the pedophile demon goblins of the globalists and and you could see this throughout the works of Philip K. Dick, and it's no coincidence that the conspiracy, what would you call a community, is so attracted to that, especially uh, later on in the, because it took a, f- a few decades before people became more aware of Francis Deck. So a lot of the people who were occupying this really strange convergence during the 80s and 90s between things like the New Age, things like conspiracy theory, things like really weird uh, avant-garde art uh, that was happening at the time. It seemed that Philip uh, Philip K. Dick's work and Francis E. Deck's writings, what, what would you say they're, uh, you could call it a kind of schizopoetics. They were rife for this milieu and nowadays, the fact that people are becoming more aware of, of uh, Francis Deck, it it's doesn't seem crazy to the extent that it was maybe a few decades ago, in the sense that okay, one concept that Francis Deck always goes back to with the Brain Thoughts Broadcasting Radio, he believed that the moon was hiding a sophisticated computer bank. It's again, David Icke, right? The moon was hiding a sophisticated computer bank where people's thoughts would be broadcast to the moon. The gangster computer God would distort people's thoughts and would project them back into what he believed was the brain computer apparatus. And it was always, um, society in general was controlled, what he called the containment policy. So think of the language nowadays, the Great Reset, Agenda 2030, the containment policy was based off of a numerical sequence that would control uh, vast economic sways in the market to mundane things like um, traffic lights. So think of the relation that people have to digital technology nowadays, right, to to communication systems, to the um, impersonal algorithms that actually have a tangible influence on people's behaviors, people's consumer spending patterns, people's uh, political ideologies, right? So in some ways, it doesn't seem as crazy to believe in impersonal computer systems and networks influencing the very thoughts that we have. Uh, And this goes into like, this is like, you know, critical theory, uh, the culture industry, Theodore Adorno, to Michel Foucault and Deleuze with the societies of control, because the linchpin of the societies of control is viewing the subject, not just being created by power, biopower, governmentality, but rather the subject becomes a conduit of information itself in the network society, in the societies of control. And so now governments and various forces of power that are decentralized, such as corporations, now they are Viewing the human subject as vectors of information outputs, output mechanisms to then be sorted and categorized and so forth, and that this is the very, um, the short but meaningful essay by Gilles Deleuze, uh, uh, postscript on the societies of control. So, yeah, sorry, I'm just rambling right now, Jeffrey. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Let's um, so let's
0: follow that up with just a little, another little clip from these recordings, mm. which addresses the containment policy that you mentioned um i'll just play play a bit so people get a get a flavor
1: gangster computer god worldwide secret containment policy made possible solely by worldwide computer god frankenstein controllers especially lifelong constant threshold brainwash radio quiet and motionless I can slightly hear it repeatedly this has saved my life on the streets four billion worldwide population all living have a computer god containment policy brain bank brain a real brain in the brain bank cities on the far side of the moon we never see primarily based on your lifelong frankenstein radio controls especially your eyesight tv sight and sound recorded by your brain your moon brain of the computer god activates your Frankenstein threshold brainwash radio lifelong, inculcating conformist propaganda, even frightening you and mixing you up, and the usual "don't worry about it" for your setbacks, mistakes, even when you receive deadly injuries.
0: Mm. So that that's more or less uh, your your reference uh, for this quite remarkable, mm-hmm. elaborate vision that the deck offered, which I agree. Not only anticipates a great deal of what of the more interesting developments in in sci-fi, but also, as you were saying, what we might call critical theory, both both echoes and anticipates work in mm. that. I'd like to read also a little bit from this Jeffrey Sconce technical delusion, which uh, a passage you know by a um, tenured academic, <laughs> some recruit, yeah. um, which which in many ways I think harmonizes pretty well with your own your own account um, and would just be interested to get your thoughts on on Sconce's take here. So Sconce says, to the modern ear Deck's manic rantings are undeniably comic, but this humor like so much comedy stems in large part from our own sublimated anxiety. Dex insane screeds about the communist gangster computer God are funny because they allow the smugly sane to disavow a basic truth at the heart of Dex universe. Most recognize, in some form and by some name, the existence of something akin to the worldwide computer god's secret containment policy, an abstract field of power, perhaps unrecognizable even to itself. After living with disciplinary power for some two centuries, today's technocratized citizens understand that authority once vested in a single person, a certain machine, or even a residual nation state is now dispersed not only across everywhere and thus nowhere of administrative control, but through endlessly proliferating vectors of dissimulation, camouflage, and evasion. Once a thing to be possessed and implemented, power is now, for many, simply an abstract force of nature to be endured. Deck's writing is funny in large part because he is naive enough to believe that this modern form of power might actually be named, its plots actually exposed. This hubris is even more hilarious given Deck's incongruous collisions between the minor frustrations of life on Long Island and a massive bank of computers orchestrating reality from the dark side of them. The communist gangster computer god, never asleep and always lurking, possesses the malicious precision to program even traffic jams and curb cuts in downtown Hempstead. Laughing at Deck's delusional portrait of the Frankenstein slave state relieves us from confronting our own implicit theory of the ego's subordination to techno-semiotic power. Sure, the idea of a communist gangster computer god working as a master puppeteer is amusing, but is it any more or less ridiculous than any other attempt to comprehend the machinations of contemporary society? Mm. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that passage and how.
2: Yeah, that passage stuck out to me. Like, too many thoughts. Too. Many. Uh, <laughs> I think that it it, it really is. Uh, it's trying to concretize the impersonal and ethereal forces of power that and Francis Deck really was almost in a way. And like you said anticipating what for example the typical like middle period Foucauldian analysis of power and power knowledge that isn't just repressive although he is um it's repressive to him because he's the only one that can get it right but really it is power is generative so power is a productive force it is a poesis in some ways uh so it is producing the subject in such a way as to even produce the very thoughts themselves. So now we're going beyond uh, simple, let's say, Oedipalized repression. Now it's a desiring production, right? So this, uh, and notice the language in both Foucault and Deleuze. It is not merely that, uh, it's it's not that, okay, producing desire is good, right? and all the repression is bad, it's more, it's not that binary, it's more of the engines of power within society are producing desire, producing the subject, but it's not necessarily this liberatory aspect, so for example, capital itself is something that is very deterritorializing in a lot of ways, it's something that produces desire, it's something that erodes barriers, Uh, but that's not necessarily a good thing, right, so with Francis E. Deck, you have this erosion between what is the virtual or what is the schizo and the real, which is everyday society. So now the schizo crosses those lines and barriers between what is real and what is a fantasy. So like Young said, fantasies are facts, right? This is even more real. So now the pen in the cockpit is no longer just a pen. It is an apparatus of control. Now the like he says, uh, one of the more the more humorous clips, uh, which is uh people know the look at the picture, right? He says, uh, you know, deadly attacks even in my yard with sticks and stones, with uh deadly touch tabin or electric shock flashlights, right? So this is um, and of course, Tabin was this like theoretical nerve gas. That the nazis were developing so he had some experience but i think his family was in the the war uh so he knew about the i uh, not sorry not the nazis the soviets developing the uh the deadly tabin nerve gas and he believed that there was tarantula spiders that would inject the gas so now all of nature and all of existence is a web of power that is directly oppressing the subject the very existence of spiders even (laughs) but so notice that there's no separation there's this cross cutting between fiction and reality and so like similar to philip k dick in a lot of his works there is this blending of the real and the fictional within a context of conspiracy creating mythologies of conspiracy and people don't look they people don't even look at critical theory that way they look at it as like this very um this very dry exploration of apparatuses of network societies and so forth and the, the linguistic turn and, and whatever, right? They don't look at that as almost like creating a mythology of modern power in a lot of ways, a mythos, a poetic mythos, mythopoetic, you could say. And and uh, you could even say that a lot of uh, conspiracy thought on the political right, uh, it's almost like a right-wing, consp- like critical theory. But now it's like this apparatus of power that has to be physically manifested rather than let's say Foucauldian discursive power which doesn't have a central node or subject Francis Deck believes in a central node the communist gangster computer god but in a way you could say that this ancient force is something that is decentralized and something that is detached from just one central power uh power over oppression now power is absolutely everywhere from the pen in your hand to the spider to uh going down the street and getting groceries and no and he would do things like he would um go through different routes to go to different grocery stores or i guess in new york bodegas right so he uh would do things like he stopped going to his stock um he had stock options and he would go to like brokerage firms but he would like go down these like abandoned uh office buildings and he could see the gangsters inside of them ready to just like leap <laughs> leap out so uh yeah that's the, that passage in in the text uh, particularly struck at me because the way that we talk about uh what would you say techno power in a techno capital network society is very similar to um It goes beyond just saying that oh well you know science fiction preempted what was gonna happen like you know how star trek preempted the cell phone uh it's more so the embodied experience of the schizoaffective person is grafting on a layer of fantasy that is harmonizing with the real and now that fantasy is eroding the real through a creation of the spectacle and societies of control and all that stuff you know from de to Deleuze. <laughs> like I, I know i'm just being a theory cell right now but like it's um it's more like this erosion of the lines between fantasy and the real and fact and we're seeing this nowadays through the discourses of post-truth alternative facts people living in their own what uh, Robert Anton Wilson called reality tunnels, which another again, a, a, a writer that uh, I believe Robert Anton Wilson also knew about Francis Edeck, uh through his connection with Genesis P Ridge and these other alternative figures. Again, another writer who's actually writing fiction about conspiracies and, and uh, what he calls guerrilla ontology, which is like the systematic undermining of reality through like these avant-garde acts of uh, disrupting people's like normal interpretation of things. So for example, He has uh a story where like a little person wants to get back at like these uh these giants that he has to live with. So he does things like he'll go in the grocery store and he'll change like the aisle sections and the the different signs and he found a way to change the stoplights. So think of it, all of this like poetics of conspiracy, they all share this weird harmony with Francis Deck. And it's uh yeah, so cut me off right now. I'm going. going too much into it no i mean there is there is just so much to say <laughs> yeah yeah
0: the thing that i um and that sconce also discusses this but um you brought up the you brought up gang stalking earlier and so this is something i've been interested in and i've written a few things about um so gang stalking for those unfamiliar is i you know it it essentially is a a large online subculture at this point um, or the victims of gang stalking are often targeted individuals. Is their self-designation? And those two terms are are kind of part of this larger cluster of terms that
3: Mm.
0: um, are used by people who describe experiences very similar to, to decks. Now, the reason I bring it up is because it, it does take a somewhat different shape because deck was Fundament, you know, as I said before, it's it's a little bit hard to tell how much he was really just generating all of this stuff um, on his own versus how much he was a, and per, what in particular he was absorbing from culture around him. But he, um, you know, nevertheless was an incredibly isolated figure, right? And this is why he was, um, you know, he was mailing out these <laughs> <laughs> screeds and and putting them under windshield wipers and just just to get anybody to listen to him and you know, if you compare that to today, what's happened is you have people with a very similar kind of, you know, building a very similar kind of mythology. But for the most part, or, or at least many of them, many, many thousands or tens of thousands of them are doing it collaboratively.
3: Mm-hmm. So
0: that is to say, you know, because because of the Internet, they don't have to, uh, you know, uh, type it out and put it in the mail. They, they just get online. And so what happens is they get on, you know, originally it was message boards, you know, now it's social media as well. And they start sharing these experiences. And it's interesting to observe what they've done, because first of all, you know, there's a there's a strange loop because there's so much of the the sort of cultural content that you've been alluding to that came out of the 60s, 70s, 80s mm-hmm. kind of absorbs this whole paranoid worldview, you know kind of schizo effective worldview and plugs it into popular culture so you have say the movies made of philip K. dick novels um you know and the many other things probably most famously the matrix that express kind of similar
2: yeah sp- well even at the time in the 70s like this was when eric von daniken was like going on a world tour and, and that-, that the ufo phenomenon was really kicking off as well and then in the 90s you had this convergence of ufology with the new age with like biblical end time stuff and conspiracy militia like you know pre-waco type of thinking that was like on the early internet like the news boards and that then uh, a lot of the uh, later developments in conspiracy thinking with forums like uh, the you know godlike productions above top secret uh the x board on 4chan you you're right there is this like similar thousands of people converging to create collective narratives of conspiracy and of personal conspiracy like the, if you go to the gang stalking forums on places like reddit uh it's really interesting how i mean you could look at it from a clinical you know standpoint where this is like mutually assured delusions and these people need help and but then in a in a weird way that almost would reinforce uh reinforce their worldview because like think of it, Francis Deck, he died in a uh in a I believe a what do they call it? They had the institutions, psychiatric hospital. And there was this incident where these trolls tried to like get into contact with him. And and just the like the people that were doing it were despicable, but um they, they really tried to like get at him. Uh these hipsters from Austin, Texas. Uh so that he was in a psychiatric hospital. So the question is when someone has this type of thinking, when there is medical intervention, now there is a direct representation of control, and you know, going through the typical Foucauldian, like the prisons or like the psychiatric hospitals, like the military barracks, disciplinary power, you know, the the docile body, all that stuff, right? Now that almost reinforces it, and when you like actually look at a lot of these gang stalking people. The medical intervention that they desperately need reinforces that aspect of power over their lives. And then, you know, this, and also to note, when Francis Deck was writing more prominently in the 70s, this was the birth of anti psychiatry. This was radical critical theory. This was like uh, Thomas Saws with the therapeutic state and Artie uh, Lang, which, I mean, Artie Lang, to go off on a tangent, when you look at texts like The Divided Self, this is Francis Deck. This is the schizophrenic who is creating a false self system, a, a layer of mythic, uh, mythopoetic fiction to hide their notion of the true self, what he called the retreat into the citadel of the self. So the concept is that Artie uh, Lang says that these people lack what he called existential security or ontological security. So their being itself is being undermined by their disorder. but through the process of creating this false self. So for example, a schizophrenic would say that um, my face is made of glass that's that's shattering, right? That is a representation of their inner worldview of their inner picture of themselves, right? So Francis Deck is creating this elaborate alternative history to create a sense of he is the only one that knows his true self but everyone else is subject to the machinations of the gangster communist computer God with their brain thoughts, broadcasting radio Frankenstein slave. So it's, but, for, but notice how already laying in that text, the divide self, he doesn't like look at it through the standpoint of, well, they need medical intervention. It's more so that the schizophrenic is creating this elaborate alternative world in order to reveal a deeper truth about the nature of modernity itself, but because they are viewed through the lens of like, they can't turn off their schizoaffective disorder. Then all of the discourses of medicalization that they're crazy, they need drugs, um, all of that stuff. Like this is like very, you know, at the time anti-psychiatry was everywhere among like niche academic circles in like, you know, Berkeley. And uh, a lot of the new agers, like uh, I believe Artie Lang also, new people like Alan Watts and he like took LSD. And if you read his other books, like um, the politics of experience and the bird of paradise, he talks about his various relationship to shamanic practices. So there was this like weird moment in the seventies where the new age uh, wasn't like the, you know, crazy flower children. Like it, it was more contextualized. Like a lot of academics started to seriously look at, a lot of those concepts uh when things started to like the idealism soured over now the academics were parachuted in to <laughs> you know so and uh, for example the university i went to was actually established in the 70s as this like weird alternative canadian university uh philosophy department and uh, i was you know i think we're the only canadian university that has a paid master's in uh Eastern thought and and continental thoughts. So, uh, not to dox myself, but uh, you could look it up. It's pretty easy. <laughs> but so a lot of this thought was converging at the time, even within academia. Of course, like that seems like totally anathema now. Like even in literature departments, a lot of this stuff would be you know, considered um, not appropriate. And of course, Jeffrey, you're an academic, so you you know more about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think um,
0: so a couple things. So obviously we could also think here about um, anti-Oedipus, right? Yes. Uh, Schizo and anti-Oedipus. And, and there is kind of this notion that, um, you know, which there there are various other examples of this. You know, if you go back to, do you know the, the um on the origins of the influencing machine and in schizophrenia by Victor Tausk.
2: I think I've heard of it like years ago. I came across it, but uh, I haven't read it. I should I should really yeah. I, I know of like that type of work, but yeah. It's kind of
0: one of the first um texts to try to categorize this, you know, essentially this um particular type of delusion that involved an elaborate technology mm-hmm. that offers a particular particularly elaborate version of, but um. In any case, you know, he in that text notes that of all the, you know, and he's a disciple of Freud working in, uh, you know, Vienna.
2: Oh, that's the one that Deleuze later takes up when it comes to like schizoanalysis. He was the one that described um, the one patient would say he's like the clown of God. Is that the one? Yeah. But he So anyway, the only point I was going to make is that he there observes that
0: generally the influencing machine, is operated by a, is operated by a physician or by a psychiatrist or analyst so in other words the <laughs> going back to what you know and, and this kind of anti-psychiatric um, attempt to kind of think about the the schizo as um, partly trying to articulate his or her own victimization by medicine, by the sort of medical regime right
3: mm--hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so the, the way that the the content of the delusion can kind of express that I mean to me the most remarkable instance of this is Schraber you know Daniel Paul Schraber's um, memoirs of my nervous illness where really oh, yeah. the entire you know it's it's very similar to deck in many ways although more um you know it's it's maybe less elaborately technological and more kind of overtly mythological you know and obviously that was an important text for Jung as well as Freud yes. um, but they're, you know, essentially the kind of orchestrator of the the whole cosmic conspiracy is flexing. who's a psychiatrist, right? So yes. Yeah. Sort of, um, you know, this almost like satanic figure, <laughs> and, and so you know, the entire thing he's representing is really his own. And he and he writes the book in order to make the case for his own release from the um, from the asylum. Right? Yeah. Find um, and if you go back to somebody like James Tilly Matthews as well, you know who who really struggled to to be released and and for whom again I think you know the, these these delusions of of kind of control and persecution actually do seem to emerge in fullest form out of the treatment of these individuals by the relevant sort of medical authorities.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That, um, the anti psychiatric account is quite. Convincing um well what, even the experiment that Thomas saws did where he sent like nor- quote unquote normal people to psychiatric institutions and told them to pretend to be schizophrenic and I believe uh they actually like almost ninety percent of the people that he used actually did get uh what what what's the term for it they call it in in California they call it a fifty one fifty they actually got like uh charged as wards in in these psychiatric institutions right so there is a lot of thought there that um and again what we mean like obviously people that are schizophrenic they're affecting their life like francis deck lived a very um distraught impoverished lifestyle and uh, so no in no way that we're saying that, you know, oh, it's a good thing if we just allow schizophrenics to like go on their own, right? But it is true that the, the view from that anti-psychiatry perspective that comes out of Michel Foucault and other thinkers is that, you know, it's not that like the Freudian Oedipal complex of the disequilibrium of the organism is brought out by the psychoanalyst and is therefore rendered whole. So now the the psychiatrist has to bring out that psychic energy and then explore it. Rather, in this view, psychiatry produces those desires and disequilibriums. It produces the condition from which it can then monitor Uh, the subject through various means of surveillance and also confession or what you know Foucault called pastoral power so the confessional is the biggest apparatus of capture to the schizoaffective subject now you must confess your own mental illness you must come to terms with it and from there you can become a regimented subject so that is a lot of this you know a lot of the mainstream thought that we see that's influencing contemporary politics nowadays and you know me and you were both in this like weird space of like coming to terms with postmodernism right and uh how the the typical discourse for example on uh, on the right of the political spectrum like you know these weird french pedophiles came and influenced academia and and totally uh you know destroyed civilization it's deeper than that in the sense of there is a series of conditions that have come about that have created our, you know, postmodern epoch. And therefore you have people like Francis Deck that are almost in a lot of ways preempting these very postmodern conditions of the relation between the subject and power itself. So uh, there's, and, and notice how, notice how the smarter people in these extremely online, Uh, anonymous right-wing circles now we're almost taking that anti-psychiatry discourse because it's therapy like people saying go to therapy and the uh predominance of psychiatry within society as almost like a way of now we have social psychiatry so now psychiatry becomes quote unquote woke now the instead of the new left now it's the online right that is taking up this anti-psychiatry discourse in the current moment. And so there's a lot of weird implications because conspiracy has always been sort of like para right wing in in some ways. The conspiracy of these vast ontologies, whether it's, you know, call them globalists, the Illuminati, the bloodlines, uh, the reptilians, that's always been sort of kind of like a right wing thing. And now that you have this critical theory dimension of anti-psychiatry, now Francis Deck becomes popular. And let's face it, Four Chan has taken up Francis Deck because he, you know, he has this very racialized worldview. That's another thing I wanted to also bring up with what you were saying, Jeffrey, about um, the 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 anti-psychiatry angle, because Francis Deck's writings are both racially charged and sexually charged as well, because he keeps bringing up how his brother would like you know, the, the slut that my brother would sodomize after me, like, and he would have this like very elaborate sexual and racial charge and tinge to his writings, especially the racial aspect. But the the undercurrents of sexuality are also there as well, which I think is another interesting thing. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, I'm really interested to hear. Yeah. So definitely, obviously his,
0: um, you know we we could go into the the complicated kind of racial dimension of his cosmology i mean in some sense you know part of it is um you know not not atypical of its era right mm, he's mm. highly anti-semitic and sort of anti-black and roots <laughs> yeah. which which you know was was a kind of typical right-wing you know kind of john bircher or something view of the period so in that sense and you know yeah. this is the reason why i thought he was kind of interesting as like a, a sort of alternate universe philip k dick because dick you know, appears to have been much more in sync with the left mm-hmm. um, and, you know, Californian. But at the same time, they're kind of, um, you know, it also seems to me that conspiracy culture in this period was highly mobile. And you you saw um, both versions of it and a great deal of appreciation of it, I'd say on both sort of extremes of the political spectrum, right? Because yeah. you I mean, and people like Robert Anton Wilson were were much more kind of associated with the sort of left counterculture world,
2: and 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 then libertarianism, which was like sort of on that border, yeah,
0: yeah. So so there's you know the the sort of cultural location of I, I think today people largely see usually see conspiracy theory as primarily a kind of right wing discourse. I think it was a bit more nebulous back then. Yeah, definitely this kind of um, racializing of the universe, which which is a, just a theme that you see in, and, you know, I think you can think about it in sort of Deleuzian terms um, as, as a kind of, um, well, you know, there's a lot to say about this, but <laughs> yeah. you know, if you go back to Schreiber who I mentioned as well, right. He also has this, this very, um, his whole vision is very much organized in terms of these different kind of races and lineages. Um,
2: yeah. And then you have like Wathrop Stoddard, like, like to typically think of any, um like right-wing hbd like human biodiversity like racial categorization in, in uh, the american context a lot of the alt-right ideas uh, a good friend of mine back in um this magazine we used to write for basically wrote this article where he was saying how and any sort of like white nationalist like alternative right idea could be traced to people like lothrop stoddard then later like francis fordiaki would be another one uh and and notice how uh, another thing too I would mention now that the before it slips my mind about 4chan, you know the 4chan meme, me being full-blooded Italian. I don't know if you could tell by my <laughs> my name. By the way, Jeffrey, uh, like like our, our good friend Alex Casciuta, immaculate pronunciation of my last name. So thank you very much. Um, know the 4chan meme where they say how Italians are really black, right? Like like especially me being half southern Italian, half central Italian. So uh Fra- uh, Francis E. Deck, he had an Italian judge that he called the N word. So he thought his judge was black, but was Italian. So he he was preempting that 4chan meme that us Italians are actually black people. And of course, in the American context back in the day, uh, Italians occupied this like weird space similar to certain asian groups where they were kind of white but not really but then of course by the 1990s we were like fully waspified and now that you know uh we're we're white people now and and even like there's even hangovers like on twitter the other day there was this person that pointed out that um what's the the state university in new york uh sunny right apparently yeah. <laughs> apparently Italian is a protected category still. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah, it's um but anyway, so I don't know. There I mean, and to me it's like since I'm I'm from New York, uh from you know, sort of um a similar, you know, not totally dissimilar environment from where Francis died, where there were just like various different kind of ethnic groups, you know, there there is kind of yeah. that strain of his writing where like You know, you have like the Poles and you have the Italians and, you know, as with all of these other elements, like there's this kind of mundane backdrop where he's really just reflecting some of the, um, the ordinary facets of his daily world of, of, you know, living in these kind of multi-ethnic sort of outskirt areas of New York where there were these tensions. And then, but then he's kind of plugging them into this whole, you know, (laughs) sort of cosmic (laughs) conspiracy. Um, But yeah, so and and obviously, you know, going back to the von Daniken, right, where where again you have this kind of um you know, it's one of the sources of these ideas about sort of bloodlines and
2: the hyperboreans, the agarthans, yes, yeah. yeah. But anyway, there
0: there's um there's a lot more to say. I, di- I did want to get to one other thing that kind of goes back to something I was talking about before, which is you know, it seems to me something significant happens when um, when you have uh, people with a kind of similar sensibility to the deck really doing their work collaboratively. Yeah. Also being able to draw on a great deal of popular culture that has kind of translated, um, you know, ideas like decks into entertainment. Yeah. So in other words, there's this kind of odd feedback loop where, you know, people like deck fed this this kind of vision or this, um, sensibility kind of into the, um, into the culture industry, right. It produced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now what you have is people who are, you know, um, working collaboratively to try to make sense of these experiences, um, you know, which may just begin with, I mean, as uh, the way it's often told is just, they start noticing weird things, right. They start looking at them strangely and, you know, so, so they started looking for patterns and, and different synchronicities and, of, and and so something interesting happens there where what used to be, I mean, and to me, this is a kind of modern postmodern dichotomy where, you know, somebody like Francis C. Deck is sort of as a creative figure is, is a sort of high modernist in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Who pours his entire sort of creative energy into elaborating this completely unique universe right with, yeah. with um with its own logic and its own kind of um you know idiosyncratic literary style um and so he's as a sort of creative person a- as was you know i think of like daniel paul schraber as one of the great modernists you know and and sort of a parallel figure to you know someone like joyce or
2: um, yeah that period or even and, even like Yeats creating his own mythology out of thin air
0: absolutely and so i think deck is is kind of a later uh or perhaps one of the last great true events. yeah and then because what you have more today is this kind of postmodern pastiche right so if, if you look at the the people who are of similar sensibilities they're you know they're not these kind of isolated individuals who are just forging this um this kind of grand vision um you know Alone, entirely through their own creative energies. Instead, they're kind of just yeah. creating a pastiche of different bits and pieces that come from different things. So that you know, on one hand, they're they're borrowing from popular culture, right? They're borrowing from Hollywood cinema and saying, like, you know, this movie, whether it's The Truman Show or The Matrix or you know, Blade Runner or whatever, is is somehow um, is is expressing this thing that I'm experiencing and, and giving me a kind of language for talking about it. But then they're also drawing on the historical record, right? Which is why yes. the targeted individuals are obsessed with CoIntel Pro. They're obsessed with MKUltra. Yeah. Other, uh, these other, you know, real historical government programs that when they find out about them appear to be corroboration of the very thing they're claiming, right? Basically that, that, that the government has these secret experiments that they're carrying out where they're um you know trying to drive people crazy or where they're they're creating these kind of um secret operations aimed at ruining the lives of random individuals so so yeah. they they the people today are much more modern and just in the sense that they're they're not forging this original vision they're really just kind of and, and it's from the cultural archive and, and elaborating this kind of patchwork.
2: Yeah. Gr- yeah. Great, great stuff. And there's no separation between the work of art and real life now that like the gallery is now imploded. Now it's performance and politics itself becomes performance. Right. So uh, one thing I immediately think of, well, a few things, actually, I actually um discussed this on uh, what would you say? I'm I'm a regular on the Break the Rules podcast. You can look it up, and I was talking about. I know it sounds so ridiculous. Uh, for a, a example, from our contemporary era, but you know, do you know about uh, Kristen Weston Chandler, Chris Chan? Um, vaguely, but yeah, refresh our memory. So Chris Chan, well, well, Christina, because uh, he, she is now transgender, uh, is would, you, would the closest to come to a living Truman show on the internet christian was the first internet what they call lol cow so someone who has high functioning autism that uh every there's a uh okay so christian is the creator of a comic called Sonicu, which is a combination of pikachu and sonic and so Sonicu, uh christian would create these like very poorly drawn comics that he would then uh put on the internet and so 4chan and uh various other people like from Encyclopedia Dramatica and so forth would have a great interest in Chris Chan and Chris Chan then became this living Truman show where he, she would record video of him herself. I'm saying him because this was like back in like 2010 and so forth. And then people would archive Chris Chan in this, you could go to it. It's called the, the CWC, uh, encyclopedia, and they have this whole thing where people would archive uh, his behavior, his thoughts, his uh, reaction to other people. Because what happened was there was this creation of troll culture where these trolls would pretend to be like women or other people that would affect Christian because he was on what he called his love quest, where he tried to find uh, what he called a boyfriend-free girl, right? And there's, this, there's so much, there's so much content even to the point where I believe uh, like popular culture took up Chris Chan to some extent, like Opie and Anthony played a few clips of him and uh, he would do these, uh, like people would do these elaborate months, months long pranks on him and would pretend to be like, like there was a story arc with different, what they called sagas of like different trolls interacting with him. And this was all broadcast on the like early to mid two (laughs) thousands internet. So and and of course, uh the dimension of like gang stalking and like people troll and troll culture and shit posting and this like very like collaborative mythology around Chris Chan was created. So that's one one thing I would immediately go to as like sort of a um relational aesthetics to like the creation of the work of art on the internet. And I said this on Break a Rose podcast a few days ago, where in some ways even though these trolls would do like very absolutely horrible things to chris chan in some ways you could say that's almost like the creation of a living work of art in the sense that you're taking someone who has who possesses um ontological insecurity and then you are manipulating the story arc of their life through this like weird self reporting and interacting with trolls and internet troll culture and uh that's just to me That's almost like if Francis Deck were like an online chip poster. I think like if the trolls discovered Deck, if he was alive in this era, something similar would have happened. So another thing too, I would say would be, um, you mentioned high modernism and as an artist, I'm very influenced by like things like the New York school and German expressionism. And one of my absolute favorite artists would be, uh, George Gross, uh, in that, like, Weimar period he had this one painting which was a collage called a vic I, I shit you not a victim of society and of course now we have the discourse around joker about like you know we live in a society gangweed where it was a man where he he would paint a portrait of this person i believe was a soldier and he would uh glue on different advertising uh things like uh the eye would be reversed There would be like a razor to his neck. There would be uh, machine parts around him. So now, and and of course, if you look at the history of German expressionism and Dada, there was other pieces like even one by Duchamp, where it was this combination of the face and the subject with machines and so now like in social realism like in dada now the human subject is blending with technology and with uh these oppressive forms of uh techno capital alienation through machines and and various uh and and so the work of art really is the expression of this common reality that we're experiencing this alienation from uh our various technological apparatuses, what uh, one one academic in this article I'm trying to write now on Agamben called, uh, what, what do you call it with, he was writing this paper about uh, Foucault, the societies of control and like the, in social media, he called it um, participatory servitude, where now you are giving information about yourself. You are participating in this mass consciousness of social media. And then you in turn are being influenced And regulated and, uh, you know, regimented by the apparatuses of digital technology and social media. So, and now you have a living embodiment in Chris Chan and in other, like uh, a lot of the early internet artists, like when artists started to discover the power of the internet, they had other things where they would uh, create like a decentralized network works of art like free beer comes to mind but this is even more dark and scary because these trolls would lead chris chan down very dark and disturbing paths and a lot of it had to do with bodily fluids and things like that so uh yeah i sorry i'm just like totally wilding out right now but... um, that, so
0: it, that connects to something else that kind of follows up on my previous point which it relates to the targeted individuals or gang stalking victims which i've always found fascinating so the results or one result of their somewhat um, you know, pastiche-based approach to kind of trying to make sense of their experience is that in some ways it ends up being quite retrograde in the way that it represents technology because mm-hmm. they're so heavily reliant on kind of the cultural archive of, you know, particularly like the late 20th century, right? It's it's a little bit um, sort of ontological in that way because- yes. Yeah. back to this um you know th- this period when you had uh, all of these, you know, I mean particularly the the sort of period of corruption of sci-fi and things like that, but, but also um, you know, of, of the era of Cointel Pro and MKUltra and things like that. So but what's interesting about this is that the way they imagine their sort of technological subjugation is actually very much based on sort of 20th century technologies. Now yeah an interesting example of this is uh, something else that i wrote about last year about um the 5g conspiracy theories oh yeah i think i read that yeah yeah which you know but this is an ongoing thing that
2: they've been obsessed with cell phone towers for forever right mm-hmm. they're um, burning them down yeah they we're burning yeah. them down i actually had a pl- plan to do a painting actually of one of these burning cell phone 5g towers That'd be so. awesome. let <laughs>
0: yeah, I I to see that but
2: anyway the but what's interesting here is that what's
0: the, the, the anxiety is not around, it's not actually around the digital, right? It's, it's around this kind of giant piece of hardware. Yeah. So, yeah. so it is, you know, if you go back to the idea of the influencing machine as Tausk elaborates it, right, where it, the, the influencing machine kind of morphs gradually and kind of takes on the qualities of the, um the, the technologies of the time. So you had James Tilly Matthews, whose influencing machine was kind of um, you know re- resembled sort of early industrial revolution um techno you know it was a loom right it was he called mm-hmm. it. um and then you know it sort of gradually evolved um so it it could look it could be more like a um like a, a you know a, a movie projector or a satellite or you know just whatever it, it would resemble whatever the dominant technologies were
2: hardwired analog technology yeah yeah, but a cathode ray would be one of them. Yeah. So it's interesting
0: to me that um, you know the tower is actually the the kind of locus of the anxiety, right?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, so
0: so that I think says something that goes back to your um, your discussions of of Deleuze and you know societies of control because what this suggests is um, it's still a kind of disciplinary panoptic vision. Right? Yeah. Yeah, the way, they're, the way they're thinking about cell phone towers, you know, it, it almost resembles the kind of um, central observation tower of the Panopticon, right? It's, yeah. So it, it it suggests that because they're so heavily reliant on this prior cultural archive, their sort of imaginary, you know, sort of cognitive mapping of the world um, is is somewhat attached to this actually obsolete. Model of the sort of you know what Sconce calls the techno-semiotic functioning of power because they're not um, they're not engaged on the on the sort of micro level right they're, they're right not, and and you know to me the the thing that most illustrates this is the way that they they're incredibly um, you know they believe they're being surveilled in all of these ways but then they'll like go on the internet and talk about this <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, it's as if they don't. Um, perceive or many of them anyway d- like don't perceive social media itself as a surveillance apparatus right yeah um, and that's because it it functions in quite a different way from the panopticon right it's exactly it's a, a panoptic surveillance apparatus it it's um it's something quite different um but but that actually functions much more along the lines that deleuze um, lays out in the postscript on the societies of control and and so you know this Creates a, an interesting problem where their, their visions are, you know, where, whereas I would say someone like Deck or someone who came before him are often quite anticipatory, right? They, yeah. not only of ways of thinking or ways of representing that you'd find in, say, academic discourse or, you know, popular fiction, they're also anticipatory of the actual development of technology, right? They actually mm-hmm. anticipate the way that real technologies um, evolve. Whereas I'd say today, if you look at the sort of targeted individual gang stalking forums, there's actually more of a backward looking.
2: Yeah, uh, it's like a, a retrograde. Like they're looking at it through the lens of like turn of the century power apparatuses. Yeah, I think it's because my speculation would be that internet technology that they're using, like like social media or like forums or like Reddit or whatever. It's a way, it's a conveyance, it's like, it's a way that they convey their own thoughts, and so therefore, it's almost like a zone of transference and counter-transference between themselves and others, and so they don't view it through, like, this thing is also oppressing me because this is the way that I'm like projecting my voice out onto like what I'm experiencing. So in a way they have to sort of ignore the imperceptible dynamics behind things like social media or forum culture and so forth. Um, Especially on Reddit, the fact that there's like this mutual uh, participatory servitude, the way that you don't have on 4chan, because there is a lot of, uh, i know like i'm totally biased in this regard but like there is uh, a lot of what kaczynski would call over socialization going on 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 the the way that reddit is structured through the karma system whereas unfortunately there's just pure anonymity and pure uh, i know people like do things like sage bombing or like they'll degrade the threads but like there is more of like a pure expression of like your immediate thoughts whereas on reddit there there's like a high degree of social conformity around the karma system. But I think that gang stalking people don't view it that way because the way that we even think about power, and, and Deleuze very explicitly says this in the postscript the way that we even think about power is very much centralized, it's very much of a different era. Now that we are coming into uh, digital technology, being a vector of power and, and the creation of the subject itself. It's almost like we don't even realize that we haven't internalized it yet. And maybe, who knows, maybe in the future there will be um, gang stalking people who will, like, they won't even post on social media. They'll go total Tech Kaczynski style because they realize that the internet itself is one of the biggest apparatuses of control there is, right? So, um, yeah,
0: this, this is interesting. Yeah. I mean, something that um, was happening at least I I haven't kept up on it recently was that we're starting to have, you know, in-person conferences where they would, you know, they would actually be there. And that's, you know, I, that, that was a very fast, I mean, I always wanted to go to one. Um, I (laughs) I haven't seen any in the past couple of years, but, um, you know, and the other interesting thing about it is that they, um, you know, they tend to get, they have quite a variety of people who participate in that culture because, you know, they have sort of, I mean, they have doctors, they have engineers. And so when they hold these, when they've held these conferences, they'll have people, you know, give sort of technical lectures that
2: are about, you know, the actual <laughs> feasibility of the, the kinds Almost of. Almost like 9 truth, like that. Uh, yeah. The the Jonathan K book, uh, what was it called, Among the Truthers, mm. um, where he he went to a few of these conferences and there was like legit academics and everything, um, and so of course he viewed it through the angle of like this is like mutual delusions, right? Like this is like parasocial relationships to a delusion, but really when you look at a lot of conspiracy culture and a lot of the conferences and a lot of how even the awareness that there could be like what we call like glow in the darks, you know, they're, they're lurking on 4chan, the feds, the glow in the darks. Right. And that is of course comes from another very popular schizophrenic uh, Terry Davis, who was a legit software, a computer software engineer who created temple OS. And so he called them glow in the dark CIA. I'm not going to finish the word, but it's the similar, it's the, the word that uh, that Francis deck used the gamer word. Right. So uh, when you look at these conferences and conspiracy culture and these, uh, you know, festivals, it's, it's, there's an implicit recognition of that, you know, this, this like almost like eroticized danger of like the glowies can come at me from any angle. And, and, you know, that person, right. There's a disinfo agent and like people accuse Alex Jones of being a disinfo agent. And so there's almost like this mutual panopticism that we engage in but look at 9-11 truth for instance the conference is like people think okay why is it that even academics are involved in this when you look at it like i remember like i'm old enough i'm in like my late 20s but i'm still old enough to remember when like 9-11 truth was like this you know dangerous thing right it was this like you know you're 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 literally evil if you believe in it, because the American government during like the, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the war on terror, it's like you're a subversive agent. You're probably like, you know, sympathetic with uh I don't know, Islamic terror in the way that if you're like sympathetic to certain right wing ideas now, you're like, I don't know, an agent of Vladimir Putin, right? Yeah. So back in the day, but then as time progresses, I think like most people deep down. They they have internalized in in sort of a you know a neutralized way. They're like, oh yeah, you know they they probably had something to do with it. The, the American government. Same with like the memes about like you know Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, right? It's when you look at that reality that these figures of power in both government, academia, the media, they had a relation to like a legit pedophile and pedophile procure. That meme neutralizes the shocking reality that yeah maybe people that run the world they're probably pedophiles right so it's it's a way of like popular culture converging with the language and discourse of conspiracy theories and you could say that it's a maybe that there's like some CIA think tank that's developing this to neutralize the shocking reality of uh, the pedophile demon goblins that run the world. Right. So, (laughs) and, but that, but even that hermeneutic of like suspicion that is involved in like, you know, what is a counter conspiracy that is disinformation and what is the real and true conspiracy of like, you know, the bloodlines or whatnot. And it's like, you know, there's people that are like, you know, the UFOs are involved. But no, the UFO is a is a conspiracy that, you know, neutralizes the reality that the globalists are working behind the scenes. Right. So it's like even within conspiracy circles, there's this like ongoing uh, debate and hermeneutics of suspicion. Right. So. Yeah, right. So
0: um exactly. I mean conspira right, conspiracy theory itself becomes the subject of conspiracy theories, so that there's a sort of regress. <laughs> um yeah. as as I pointed out before we started recording, I, I only just realized recently that Francis
2: deck's initials are fed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So uh there there probably would be like an export thread about how Francis deck was uh, created by the globalists, so yeah, and it's—I mean—you've brought up Alex Jones. It,
0: it do you have you? um This is, I think, that at least the second time in in this the, his, the short history of this podcast that I've brought up uh, Bill Cooper. Oh yeah, yeah, because I mean, he—I mean, first of all, he definitely thought Alex Jones was was some because I mean, he encountered Alex Jones when Jones was quite young, and he definitely thought he was some kind of Fed or. Yeah
2: I believe near the end of his life he kind of softened to Alex Jones but yeah he believed that Alex Jones was like straight up a disinfo fed so yeah He he dislikes uh, David Icke as well Yeah he thought that all the alien stuff was like a psyop pretty much and that David Icke was like one of the biggest like uh, Even like even Alex Jones and David Icke had like I know they're friends now but even like back in like I would say the mid-2000s I believe Alex Jones called him the turd in the punch bowl of uh, conspiracy theories. So, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, um. So Bill Cooper is notable as somebody
0: who's you know something like the same generation as Deck. I haven't checked their exact ages, but you mm-hmm. know, so he is he is someone who um you know elaborates not not totally dissimilar theories. Um, yeah,
2: it's never- funny because what you're talking about actually, in my bookshelf. Down there actually have a copy of Behold the Pale, New Pill Behold a Pale Horse. So <laughs> yeah, did you read the biography of him, uh, Pale Horse Rider? Uh yes, I read a bit of it. Yeah. 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 Was, it's um, it's quite fascinating. Yeah.
0: But he, um so you know, he's interesting to me because I'm I'm always interested in the way that paranoia as a sort of psychiatric category coexists with a kind of more amorphous cultural phenomenon of the sort that we've been discussing in various ways. And so, you know, you have Deck who who ends up in the kind of, um, you know, psychiatric case um, basket, but then you have someone like Bill Cooper, who is not, you know, he, he's not as, um, he's not quite as sort of florid or, um, and, and also, you know, one major distinction is whether there's the delusion of reference or not, right? So yeah. you know, Francis yeah. Deck has the delusion of reference, as you as you've said, he believed he was the only one who didn't. Um, see it and that the entire conspiracy was in a sense directed against him yeah so you know that's historically part of what's differentiated a kind of diagnosable paranoia from a just more you know a, a, a paranoid worldview let's say um because bill cooper didn't um you know he he saw himself as as uniquely well-informed let's say but he didn't because uh, of
2: his background in the military and he didn't see and, himself as persecuted right and he did yeah. actually get shot and he was like legitimately persecuted that's the thing though like legit the feds were after him so (laughs) and
0: and also i mean his you know he (laughs) he probably also reacted to that in a way that um made him more likely to get killed as he did um but you know he so anyway it's he's interesting as a kind of another
2: of these parallel figures like dick um my, my my own personal relationship to Bill Cooper was the the essay that I wrote, this was like back in 2015. I was doing my uh my philosophy MA and I wrote this paper in a Frankfurt school class that I submitted to back in the day, very popular in the in Chan Spheres, uh internet culture. Uh the video artist Nobody TM. I don't know if you ever heard of Nobody TM. Uh I wrote this article where I mentioned him, and it was about this relationship between the Frankfurt School, particularly the Dialect of Enlightenment, Horkheimer and Adorno, and uh, Foucault's middle like power knowledge period. And the title of the essay was Beholding a New Pale Horse and so um then uh, nobody tm graciously included it in the front page of the website which is now defunct but you can find the work on youtube and so forth these and and there's a relationship between the video art of nobody tm because nobody tm would take these very obscure videos of like schizoaffective people and furries and various internet subcultures and would graph them onto these elaborate um analog distorted edits and would create this video art and there was a lot of conspiracy theory, a lot of like um, online right wing reactive sphere thought that goes into this. And so nobody TM included my essay on the website and this is how a lot of like uh, people know my work originally on these like reactionary uh, blogging spheres is from nobody TM, but I actually entitled that consciously Beholding a new pale horse because I was talking about like the societies of control and uh, power knowledge and how like taking like that OG conspiracy theory subculture and how do you disrupt power? You do this by taking the, the uh, like what nobody TM does, taking the, you know, the gifts of digital technology to subvert it. And there was this other brilliant essay by uh, a, a person who published a lot of my work, Adam Wallace. You could actually find this. It's called Nobody TM Postmodern Anti Modernism. Uh it was originally on this website called West Coast Reactionaries. You could still look it up by the way, this this I uh, highly recommend this essay, uh Nobody TM Postmodern Anti Modernism. And so a lot of this thought was like related to conspiracy culture and Francis Deck and the uh the creation of the work of art or what nobody TM called edits uh video art using people who believe that they were gang stalked people who were part of very like lurid um subcultures that could only exist in the internet put it that way so there's this like really crazy convergence of all of these different influences and the internet has really allowed us to give a a a window into a lot of these inner worlds of people because you were mentioning the tower right the the nature of conspiracy being converged around panopticism and the unipolar aspect of power, similar to uh, let's you know talking about German expressionism, the you know famous uh, Weimar era film Metropolis, the the you know the human ants going to the pa- central tower in the underground city, right? Um, this panopticism is is present in so many uh, of like so many works of this type of thinking. But uh, the the central tower becomes like this stupa, this like quasi-mystical figure of power. Now it's become profane and inverted and secularized. Now it is no longer the Axis Mundi. It is the central node of control. And uh, the tower is such a powerful symbol in a lot of the thinking of conspiracy theories and, and schizoaffective uh, notions of reality, right? So... Yeah, Metropolis is definitely uh, one of this. And, and Metropolis is one of the films to combine both this aspect of a total totalitarian society and also this biblical rapture narrative that is... And, you know, of course, the, the biblical conspiracies are a big part of a lot of people who are involved in gang stalking and so forth. So, but but now I know what I was going to say. So a lot of this thinking is predicated upon um the analog technology that is one way the one-way medium of television so for example debord's book on the society of the spectacle that is predicated upon television which is very much a uh, um a mono vocal technology that is only going one way you can watch it you could change the channel you know you could maybe write into the editors right or whatever but that doesn't do anything but now we have the reality of the internet which is a technological abstract machine that is perspectival and infinite and you can respond to each other. Now it's not that you can watch the celebrity on television. Now you could like, you know, post gamer words to celebrities on Twitter. So it's a different relationship that people have towards power. Now there is this participatory servitude of channeling your you know the most intimate parts of your being into this apparatus it's no longer the television that programs you it's no longer the brain thoughts broadcasting radio that is very much predicated on like you know radio and television technology now it's like this network aspect of like now i'm giving into and taking out the the influence and the and this like one panopticism that has become you know totally exploded onto this like decentralized network hub that now i can participate in so it's like this maybe the francis deck of the future will become like a total like uh you know delusian uh, schizoanalytic figure that has to reconcile with this like totally decentralized network instead of like just the tv is oppressing me now everyone is oppressing me the whole world is become subsumed under the internet especially with like the current um you know, pandemics, you know, lockdown situation. Now normies are getting the taste of the terminally online world. And it's like a lot of people are terrified by it. They don't know what to do with it. Right. So of course people like us that were like, you know, basically uh, creatures of the internet. uh, (laughs) It's like, we're becoming the new aristocracy now, because now we can ride the waves of it. So yeah, that's just, you know. I think that's a, that's a
0: really good place to leave it um as it, yeah. it sums up many of the themes and their uh contemporary
2: relevance so <laughs> thanks so much geo it's been a, a great conversation and oh but you wanted to leave off on you wanted to ask me something about thomas kincaid is that- that's great i was gonna ask you about thomas kincaid yeah let's uh for something totally completely different uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. so, uh, this is i you know it's one of those incredibly strange things where um at some point i realized that um are two uh, shared or two of our shared interests, not the only ones, but the two that we're probably least likely to share with that many other people, um, particularly <laughs> in combination, are Francis Deck and Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light. Yeah, so, um, you are yourself a, a painter, an artist. Um, I'm not, but I've I've had a fascination with Kincaid for a while. Um, I've I guess my my thesis about him has been that he. In many ways, is a kind of parallel figure to someone like Jeff Coons.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: And oh he, yeah. He, he, yeah, He occupies a completely different cultural niche. I mean, yeah. completely non-overlapping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In various senses, both the kind of celebration of of American kitsch the culture, uh, and, um, the you know, the sort of Benjaminian embrace of mechanical reproduction. Yes. Yes. Totally. Mostly as a business model. Um, Yeah. Like, like next level art grifting. Yeah. (laughs) and So what fascinates me is that they have such radically different trajectories and occupy such different cultural niches.
2: Yes. yes.
0: You can argue that, you know, Kincaid is... Uh, in a sense, a more traditional, you know, representational painter, yeah, and so on. But nevertheless, um, he's, you know, I mean, he's he's often representing, um, say, characters from Disney movies. I mean, this is an incredibly postmodern project, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and and so I don't know. I I was curious about your uh, your take on it from your perspective as an artist and just as a, as a you know, widely read. Person interested in postmodern theory.
2: Art criticism is yeah. So no, this is great, man. This is yeah, I'm I'm getting giddy right now. Um (laughs) I I feel that Kincaid is in some ways a postmodern artist. I know it's like totally like people that are into art criticism, they hear that and they're like, What do you mean? Like that's like totally offensive, right? Because Kincaid was like this last gasp of I would say American americana filtered through the lens of like bush era evangelical like uh conservative politics and so thomas kincaid is like viscerally loathed in the way that bob ross isn't because thomas kincaid occupies this sort of like strain of americana that was that like died out when obama was elected right so thomas kincaid in a way there's like this postmodern relationship to the culture industry and to also the death of the aura, because for people who are not familiar, Thomas Kincaid was a, um, he was a traditionally trained, classically trained painter. He uh, went to ateliers and he had immense artistic skill in terms of representation. He uh, did uh, OG illustration work with people like uh, the the YouTuber, James Gurney, who did the Dino. uh, I forget, you know, that children's book with dinosaurs. I forget which one um, but he Thomas Kincaid was a uh trained painter, and he would do things like utilized the sort of art factory idea like Andy Warhol, where he would get his students that were under him to like finish off his paintings. And he would do things like scan them digitally at the time. And he would create like this whole like culture industry around himself where there was like mall stores with like Hallmark calendars. He did quite a lot of work for Hallmark and, and the Disney corporation. And Jeff Koons is the art world representation of this like, You know totally shameless gutless capitalism because he was like a stockbroker uh and he would basically have this art factory where he would create this like these monumental works of installation art that were based around like kitschy americana like stuff that you would find in uh gas stations across highway 66 is it highway 66 in the american highway yeah route 66 yeah so he would do things um There's this great, great, uh, one of my favorite art critics of all time is Robert Hughes. He did the updated version of Shock of the New called New Shock of the New, where he actually interviews Thomas Kincaid. And it was this one where it was like um, the mermaid in the bathtub with the scuba diver, like creeping up on her. And he said, like, this is, like, total gratuitous sexuality that you would find in comic books at the time, like lowbrow comic books. Whereas, like, he said other American artists that would have similar themes, like um, Paul Arego, for instance, would would do this in such a somber like and, and respectful way. But Jeff Koons embodies this, like, 80s, 90s gratuitousness of Americana and, like, you know, late capitalism in the art world. Uh, But when it comes to the kitsch of Thomas Kincaid, I have this video on my YouTube channel. It's called uh, Thomas Kincaid and Vulgar Tradism, where people on the online, right, they like would ironically meme Thomas Kincaid as like the trad art of our day because he offended like so many people in the contemporary art world that uh, through the sheer power of Hallmark Kitsch, he would create this like traditional sensibility of like religious right uh representational art and i believe he even painted um this like mural painting that is in the billy graham church so (laughs) in the billy graham library so the billy graham library so uh and he like did this he would donate paintings to ronald reagan and george bush and uh you know it's it's funny how thomas kincaid embodies this like cultural moment in america of like the uh the the like evangelical religious right like the dying breath of the religious right was in thomas kincaid and of course when he died all hopped up on pills and alcohol uh that sort of was like the death nail of that cultural undercurrent in america and i think you know thomas kincaid is a fascinating figure and he is universally reviled and but I would argue that even you know Bob Ross is even more shameless when it comes to like art marketing. But because Bob Ross inhibits this like therapeutic space for most people, he doesn't have the same. Uh, he he certainly was a, a religious conservative. Would you know like he would say God bless and goodbye and all that. Uh, but he didn't like he didn't wear the same badge of Bush era politics the way that Thomas Kincaid did. So I think that's why people one art critic in the New York times called him the Hitler of the art world. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's really, uh, there's this great video by this YouTuber Solar Sands where he goes over Thomas Kincaid. I don't know if you watched it, but I highly recommend that video. Uh, it's by Solar Sands. It's called Tom. It's on Thomas Kincaid. It's it's got like something like two million views. So uh, yeah, you you would love that, Jeffrey. You'd love that video. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the recommendation. Well, I'll, okay. and, and watch my video on vulgar tradism. <laughs> Shameless plug. Giant Productions on well, YouTube. So. Um,
0: well,
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah,
0: as we're wrapping up, uh, anything else you want to plug to...
2: Uh, Okay, so all my links are on my Twitter, Mm -hmm. twitter twitter.com slash giant geo, G-I-O, all one word. Uh, I'm on Break the Rules podcast. That's kind of like my home. Uh, And I guess, uh, you know, I'm going to create a market website for my art, but you can find me on Instagram. All my links are there. Uh, and also what I want to plug uh, I'm recently in this book where it's a collection of short stories. Uh, but I'm the, I think I'm the only one that has an essay. I write an essay about um, the relationship of Trumpism and the art world and and what the art world is going to look like post-Trump. Uh, look up ending bigly by my good friend, Bill Marchant, who is the editor, of Terror House Magazine, Ending Bigly, The Many Fates of Donald Trump. I'm in this book along with a very prominent uh, online figure such as Menchus Mold Bugman, Bronze Age Pervert, Borzi, uh, my buddy, Kashiwagi, a lot of these great authors. Uh, a lot of them are anonymous for obvious reasons, but I am I have this essay in it. It's called Cryptids of the Spectacle, The Art World Versus Trumpism and uh all proceeds go to a free speech charity so bill marchant's ending bigly please go and buy that uh, I ha- I, that's the only way you can read my essay about donald trump in the art world so <laughs> um other than that yeah go subscribe to my youtube go to my twitter uh I, reach out to me uh, dm me uh and and of course uh yeah so jeffrey's a good friend of mine and i'm so grateful that you brought me on your podcast and uh, I, I expect big things for your podcast, my friend. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. It's been a great
0: pleasure to talk. And uh, yeah, pleasure you know, is all mine. So yeah, and you know maybe we should uh, do another episode about Bill Cooper, Robert Anson Wilson. And yeah, so
2: much more to say on on this. And and, and come on, Break the Rules podcast when we we have a, a panel show. Uh, we're a ver- we're the only variety panel podcast that takes uh people that have you know names in society and and pairing them with like twitter weirdos so uh we're basically what internet blood sports would have been if uh you know people didn't you know decide that uh, grifting off of people insulting each other for two hours was worthwhile. So uh, please subscribe to Break the Rules podcast and uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I will have a way of uh, shilling my own work either through Patreon and a website in the near future. And buy and, and please go and buy Ending Bigly. It's for a good cause. A lot of great and hilarious short stories are in this by a lot of great authors. And it's it's one of the few collaborative works uh, in these like weird esoteric Twitter spheres, I highly recommend it. So thank you, Jeffrey. I know I'm totally shilling right now, but, uh, yeah. So (laughs) so. awesome. Yeah.
0: And I will, I'll put links
2: in the show notes as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks so
0: much.